Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. I'd like to welcome again all of our uh, listeners and viewers uh, to another in the sessions of uh, interviews with the experts. My name is uh, Malcolm Bell. I'm the Vice Chair for the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine here at Mayo Clinic uh, Rochester. And I'm really uh, pleased uh, to uh, welcome to the studio uh, this morning uh, Dr. Kyla Lara, who is a cardiologist in the Division of Preventive Cardiology and is going to be talking to us today about what is a cardioprotective diet. So Kyla, we're really a warm welcome to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Bell. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here to talk about something I'm very passionate about. Well, maybe just uh, to, to start with uh, here, you, you were a nutritionist at, the, at one point, uh, and now you're a cardiologist and working in the uh, preventive cardiology uh, area. Tell us how uh, that career, uh, your transition to, uh, to being a cardiologist and why you had this interest in uh, nutrition. Great question. Well, being the daughter of two immigrant parents from the Philippines, I noticed pretty early on about bad dietary habits, and I developed a passion to figure out what is actually healthy. So prior to knowing I wanted to be a physician, I thought if I became a nutritionist and became educated, then I can carry that back to my community. And so I actually completed a master's in nutrition at Columbia before deciding to go into medicine. And then from there, uh, marrying medicine with my love for cardiac pathophysiology, I became a preventive cardiologist, passionate about nutrition. So that's, uh, that's that's quite a career path, and uh, obviously uh, your nutrition and uh, your prevention of heart disease is, is obviously so important in preventive cardiology. The, the topic for today is the cardioprotective uh, diet, and when we think about cardioprotection to our patients and just you know people that just who are not even patients yet, we're really talking about preventing uh, heart attacks, we're preventing strokes, and preventing. Uh, a fatality, you know, related uh, to that. So with that in mind, what do you think determines a cardioprotective diet? That is a great question. And I know that it can be quite confusing out there because there are so many diets out there in the social media from your communities and from your own upbringing. And really, when we talk about cardioprotective diets, our main goal is to actually prevent heart disease, as you say. So if you're out there and you're wondering, well, I'm very healthy, how do I prevent any kind of cardiac event from happening or a stroke? It really comes down to cardioprotective diet, and you're basically wanting to protect the heart. And so when you think about cardioprotective diets, you want to make sure that the diet you're selecting is backed up by science. And that means that there are studies that have been published to show proof that in large populations, we're preventing heart attacks, we're preventing strokes and vascular disease. And so that is the definition of a cardioprotective diet. And the three most scientifically studied and proven are the Mediterranean diet, the dietary approaches to stop hypertension, and some plant-based diets. So when we're talking about preventing heart disease, how early should we start that? Also, is there an age where it's not worth it you know, because someone may be you know, a much older uh, person? But maybe more importantly, how early should that diet uh, begin? Yeah, and that's a really great question. And I think more recently, there's been more focus being put on 
primordial prevention, which is even earlier than primary prevention. When we think of primary prevention, we're thinking about being in our 20s to 40s to 50s before we, you know, reach that those older generations in terms of age. And so primordial is really at childhood. There's more studies looking at what are the LDL cholesterols, or some people call it the bad cholesterol when we're born. And those levels are around 20 to 40 in terms of if you know your cholesterol levels. And so they're looking at primordial prevention and early, early childhood is really going to determine the accelerated pace or um, the progression of how much plaque or cholesterol or buildup in those arteries that surround the heart. So, you know, in a, in a young person, let's say a young adult, if they said, well, my, my cholesterol is normal. And we hear that a lot. Tell us um, when people say they've got a normal cholesterol, is it really normal? And, and at what level do you, would you really need to you know, think about uh, initiating such, such a diet and, and other preventive uh, measures you know, to, to prevent heart disease? Yeah, and that's a great question, and it really depends on who you ask, because there the debate is there, and what is considered normal? Normal for normal for what? For what age? And so, you know, with more and more scientific innovations in terms of pharmaceuticals that can decrease your LDL levels to below 50. And I mean, what is normal when you get your lab report as a patient on your phone and you say, oh, my cholesterol level or my LDL is 100. And, you know, it's not having that red exclamation point that it's above 130. I'm great. I'm doing a great job when actually, you know, what other um, types of activities are you doing at home? What are the other risk factors that are part of that? That actually that LDL level is probably high for you. And so it's really important to get a better understanding of how we're feeding our bodies and what actually we have control over. And diet is the pivotal, the foundation of not just cardiovascular disease or heart disease, but a lot of cancers, your overall mortality, and how well are you going to live in those later decades of your life? Yeah, and, and in fact, uh, even if it starts off relatively normal, unless you take any action, as you get older and older, that uh, level is probably going to get higher and higher, and uh, and that's when you're really at risk. Maybe what you're saying is everyone should be on these uh, healthy diets. Is is that so? Absolutely, and you know, I'm no stranger to food culture and living in 2023, where at the top of it is convenience. And it's quite difficult depending on what neighborhood you live in, what community you live in, how you grew up and what's accessible to you based on what you can afford. And so I'm not out here saying you must buy extra virgin olive oil and the most expensive one, but it's really looking at your environment and limiting bad things. And if the one major point I can say is the rampant increase in how much ultra processed foods Americans actually eat, I don't want to throw out studies there, but there is a large cohort called NHANES where they looked at the offspring and they found that the average baseline consumption of an ultra processed food is seven and a half servings per day. And when we're talking about ultra processed foods, what does that mean? It's a classification system that tells you how much whole grain or whole foods are in a product and ultra processed is the worst type. So many additives, so many preservatives to increase the shelf life, which is 
basically why, you know, it can sit on your shelf or in your pantry for over a year and it tastes the same. They put things in there to change the palatability. So you become addicted and they taste good and you want more and more. And these ultra processed foods have a lot of nitrates in them and a lot of sodium. And those all contribute to heart disease and a lot of other diseases. And so in America, with the access to food, I think watching the ultra processed foods is probably the most important thing. And so when you need to replace a bad thing with something else, then we could talk about good things like fruits and vegetables, whole grains, nuts and other and other items. But I'll be clear, everything should be in moderation. Nothing is totalitarian because we know that none of those things are sustainable in the long term. Anything in moderation, that would be, I like to hear that, but that's certainly something I communicate to, to my patients uh, when the questions come up about anything, actually. You mentioned earlier about uh, it may depend on the community you're living in, uh, you know, socioeconomic status. We know that there are food deserts out there where people just don't have access to fresh vegetables and fresh fruits. Uh, and obviously, that that's a big societal uh, issue. But I think we have to recognize that, you know, there are people who find it very difficult to access and fresh vegetables, fruits, et cetera. Absolutely. And that is something that I actually learned when I um, did my extra training in, in New York City. I lived in Washington Heights and food deserts was one of the first things I learned about. And they have all these corner stores called bodegas and you go in there and they're just you walk right in and you see a bunch of things on the shelf that, like I said, can last a really long time. So there are initiatives to increase fresh fruit, produce, whole grains to these communities through governmental um, support. And it's really important to when you have that patient in front of you or you are that patient that you understand that we need to sympathize and be very aware that we all can't if if money wasn't an option, if availability wasn't an issue, you know, it'd be quite easy to be healthy. And so we have to meet patients where they are and meet ourselves where we are. And also in terms of time, it takes time. It takes preparation to eat healthy. You have to prepare before you go to the airport to know that I better bring snacks or I better know which airport food, fast food places I'm going to go to so that I have a, a plan in mind and I don't get there, I'm stressed, and I go and get that burger with the French fries. Yeah, in fact, some of our listeners may not be familiar with the term food desert. Can you just maybe just quickly define that uh, for us? Sure. And so a food desert is the umbrella definition of that is basically within a certain radius of where people dwell or live, they should have a certain radius of access to a grocery store or some type of store where they have access to fresh fruits and vegetables at a reasonable price. So in some of these food deserts, it could be urban, it could be rural. If you have more corner stores or convenience stores where there's no fresh fruits and vegetables, that's technically considered a food desert. Now, you mentioned earlier, again, trying to simplify this, you brought up the Mediterranean diet. So is that lots of olive oil, a pasta and red wine? Could you just simplify it? So what should the Mediterranean diet really look like? Sure. And so the Mediterranean diet, basically, it originated and it became very well known to a lot of the heart healthy community is because they found a trend in people who lived along the Mediterranean Sea. And they found that these people 
ate these this population ate a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables that were locally grown from the land they lived in. They did use extra virgin olive oil, which has very high in omega-3 fatty acids, which is important for anti-inflammatory effects. They contain a lot of antioxidants that um, are very protective in terms of protecting against heart disease. And these people also engage socially in their environment, which is very important in terms of preventing heart disease beyond nutrition because these people share meals with their family and they engage socially, which is very important as well. And they found that these, these communities have, you know, one to two glasses of red wine. So they looked at red wine and they found that the skin of the red wine has reservatrol, which is basically an antioxidant. It contains phytochemicals that are anti-inflammatory. You get the pattern here that a lot of the foods they ate are locally grown. They have anti-inflammatory effects. There are not very specific servings and don't do this and don't do that. It's eat more plants, eat, eat um, in moderation, low fat dairy, eat chicken, poultry, and reserve, you know, gamey meat, red meat for very special occasions because there's an understanding that, you know, whatever holiday you practice based on where you come from, you can indulge sometimes because that's what life is about, you know, for most of us. Getting back to the olive oil, is this a uh, just a generous sprinkling over your salad or is it more than that? So in terms of olive oil, I've gotten this question asked a couple times and, you know, can everybody afford olive oil and what type of olive oil should we be using? I mean, if we're going to be purists, then the best olive oil to consume is extra virgin olive oil. So it has to say EVOO on it. And the reason why is extra virgin olive oil, it's cold pressed. So it tastes sweeter and it's not heated. When you heat olive oil, it can extra, um, you extract all of the healthy benefits. And so um, you can tell if when you're having extra virgin olive oil, it tastes sweeter, it's less acidic and it has a more neutral taste and you want more of it. In terms of serving size, I get asked that too. You don't want to be drinking gallons of this at home, but you know, when you, you could splash it onto your salad, you should cook with it. And so everything's in moderation. And then I get asked, well, what about the Japanese? They have some of the best data out there in terms of heart healthy, and they live the longest and have very low risk for heart disease. And, you know, they use sesame oil. They do use olive oil as well. So it's really important also for everyone out there listening is that just because you consume only olive oil doesn't make you healthy. What are the other things you're doing? Because it's, we shouldn't be focused on isolated nutrients or isolated food items. There's a synergistic and composite interaction and relationship with multiple foods that we eat. So it's really focusing on the pattern. So reducing ultra processed foods, using a heart healthy type of oil, that doesn't have to be completely olive oil. You could use canola oil and you could use different vegetable oils that they use across the world, you know, and really avoiding oils like hydrogenated oils, palm oil, coconut oil. Do not use coconut oil. Okay. So uh, we've just got a minute or so uh, left uh, to us uh, during this discussion or for this discussion. If I'm hearing you correctly, uh, the Mediterranean diet is, is the one that you're going to recommend to most patients and maybe particularly those who have maybe already had a heart attack or have had uh, you know, a stent placed or have had a stroke. Is that so? I mean, is the Mediterranean diet the one that you recommend uh, the, the most? The Mediterranean diet does have the most robust evidence. And if I were to 
say this is the diet, then it would be. But, you know, in terms of the patient in front of me, if they come from a different culture or other part of the world, you can meet the patient there. Take 10 minutes to ask about a dietary recall. Ask them what they have. What if they come from Latin America? What if they come from Africa? You could really find ways to be culturally sensitive right. without saying, well, you must eat from this part of the world. It's really limiting the bad things within their diet specific to their region and increasing things that help the heart that we can model after the Mediterranean. Right. Such an important uh, point because it's really having that awareness you know, that uh, not one size is going to fit all. So just to finish here, I mean, we know that there are many different diets uh, out there. There are many patients who are going to come into your office and say, well, what about this diet, uh, you know, Dr. Laura? And, you know, whether it's a ketogenic uh, you know, diet, there's the debate about eggs and low-fat diets, low-carb diets. How do you approach that? So, I mean, I, I, we don't have time to go into the specifics of those, but uh, What's your general response? I mean, you sort of brought up you know, the, the cultural uh, sensitivities there as well. But typically, how, how do you respond to, to those questions, particularly for diets that maybe you don't really think are going to be helpful for that patient? Right. And that's a great question. I won't um, talk too long because I can go on forever about it. But number one, I do address their specific question. I think patients and people who come to you want to feel like they're being heard. And the best diet for a patient is one that they're going to follow. So if you totally negate what they're saying, then everything that comes out of your mouth afterwards is not going to be taken. And so I generally try to meet them halfway. So if I have a patient, I'll just give one example, who eats four to five eggs a day, which I've had one, you know, I talk about moderate consumption of eggs. And so moderate is one egg per day. And then we discuss other ways. And then I kind of will talk about evidence and things like that. But I think importantly, addressing, it's very difficult to address these things in a 20 to 30 minute visit, but meeting them there and then acknowledging what they're doing and their engagement in nutrition is important. Great job. It looks like you're really, you really care about what you're eating. Let's talk about the things that we know actually are proven. And then let's address some of these things and find somewhere in the middle. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Lara, because you know, it is a complex uh, area. There's so much information out there uh, in books and on the uh, internet. It can be very confusing. Good information, but it can also be uh, misleading information. But I think you've really uh, shown us how uh, we approach this, uh, you know, from from the preventive cardiology uh, side. And I, I think the information that you have shared in simplifying things has uh, is going to be very, very uh, useful for our listeners and viewers. So thanks again so much for for taking the time to join us in that studio today. Thank you very much, Dr. Bell. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.